Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Fever Dreams listeners, in the background of this recording, at least for the start of the episode, there's a good chance you hear my three-month-old son uh, crying in the other room. I deeply apologize for that, but I'm going to use that as a jumping off point to remind listeners that, up oh, there he is. Hi, hi, kid. How's it going? Um, don't worry. His mother is in the other room. I'm not abandoning him just to podcast. That, w- that would be insane. I want to remind Fever Dreams listeners that both Kelly and I are n- relatively new parents. Kelly, I have my math right on that, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he's uh, he just turned two. So, I mean, time is a complete myth in the pandemic universe but yeah i've had a pandemic baby for pretty much the duration of it was he like right at the dawn of the pandemic or just shortly after the thing actually started in yeah and let me tell you the first time i went down a covid19 rabbit hole was when i was in the hospital he was sleeping and i didn't have anything to do (laughs) and i'm just sitting there in the hospital bed being like damn that sucks for china and that's why you now guzzle ivermectin absolutely straight down the gullet give me that horse paste okay well moving on let's talk about another baby of considerably bigger (laughs) variety i'm sorry to do this to you fever dreams listeners but I wish it hadn't come to this, but it indeed has. Kelly Weil, I think it's time we finally talk on this show about a guy named William Marr. God's perfect baby. Are you familiar (laughs) with an elderly looking man on the TV named William Marr? I am. I have been aware of him for decades now because that is how long he has had his vaunted platform. And uh, I think that's around how long he's been doing the exact same shtick. I have to admit to you, I grew up a fan of Politically Incorrect, and I I, I also saw him kind of as something of a free speech martyr when I was growing up, when he was canceled. We obviously did not call it canceled by then, although I guess we did because his show literally got canceled. It got axed by ABC um, after he made some comments post 9-11. He obviously then shortly moved over to HBO, where he starred the show Real Time with Bill Maher that he now occupies to this day. And the reason we're talking about him right now is because his latest iteration is he has figured out that in the post-Trump era, he is going to be the guy who sticks it to liberals or so-called liberals, lefties, anarchists, socialists, whatever. Uh, The people on the Antifa left who piss him off so much, whether it's about 
COVID-19 related restrictions. I, I think he wishes that California would operate more like Florida or South Dakota or something like that in his anti-lockdown mentality. And he's also um, always been, given the title of his ABC show, Politically Incorrect, fancied himself a culture warrior against the forces of political correctness in America, which obviously has evolved into him being an anti-wokist of some sort. I love this idea that it is in any way like controversial and anti-woke to not enjoy COVID lockdowns. Like, what what do you think we're doing? Do you think I'm having a good time? I, I want all the listeners to know that I'm very cool. During that lull when it seemed like COVID was going away, I was double vaxxed. I went straight to the goddamn club, okay? I went raving. Oh, Bill Maher, did you go raving? Like, it's it's just baffling to me that... There, there's this block of people who thinks that liberals really want to extend COVID forever because that's just a lie. We have lives. We're just not whinging all the time. Also, he lives in one, probably one of the richest places in the entire country, if not the planet. He, he lives in, I'm assuming, maybe it's gated or maybe it's just a really nice house in like some resplendent community in California. Like what, what is he personally? I'm not talking about like uh, an underprivileged kid who ha has to do remote learning somewhere in a part of America he's never been to. What what is what is he unable to do? Who is stopping him from doing literally anything he wants to do in public or in private right now besides his declared freedom to not read anything on the internet that annoys him? Oh, but Swen, it's it's uncomfortable when the Uber Eats driver has to wear a mask at the door and they have to interface with your your doorman and you just you know you don't really want to be reminded of that reality just, let's just move on you know okay I want to play a quick clip from what we're talking about and he's been going on a tear on this for weeks at least on his fucking show and it seems almost pointless to comment on this but I don't know if you did this uh over the weekend Kelly, but I actually sat down. I was like, okay, I'm going to make myself sit down and listen to this five or 10 minute rant of his at the end of his most recent show. And it is even more bafflingly incoherent and unfunny than even I was expecting. He accuses the Democratic Party of canceling Dr. Seuss, basically just buying the Fox News line on the matter when we don't need to get into it now, but it's like, that's obviously not what happened. And then he bitches about this tiny, minuscule Costco warning label. I shit you not, he's upset about a warning label on like a tool shed or something that Costco sells that he had to read in the great state of California. Take a listen. The Biden infrastructure bill has a provision that requires all new cars to install an alert system that goes off when you leave a baby in the back seat, which is something done only by crackheads and people who sadly, yes, do it on purpose. And after every one of us winds up bearing the cost for cars to install this alarm, you know who's going to ignore it? Crackheads and people who do it on purpose. He also rails in the clip at least twice against crackheads. Crackheads. He says the word crackheads twice. He hasn't updated his stand-up material since 1988 or 1989, basically, is what he's confessing to the world there without realizing that he's admitting it. I can easily laugh at people making a funny joke that offends or tweaks at my sensibilities or comes at it even from a politically conservative perspective. I just don't really get how he's funny anymore. I think if your main grievance about COVID inconveniences is 
just cultural. It's about the media you're consuming, right? It's about seeing a label that you have to read in a Costco package or your main grievance with literature is about Dr. Seuss. You really don't have any material complaints. You know, there are people who are who have to work at Costco, who have to deal with, okay, not Bill Maher. I don't think he personally goes to Costco, but you know, whoever Bill Maher sends to Costco. And that I would listen to that person's complaints all day. But when we we get it filtered through this like early aughts, you know, just just like uh, throwing darts at a word board, oh, crackheads, you know, just this grab bag of recycled humor. I mean, if you want to be cruel, but also try to be, I don't know, some form of shock jock funny, like make fun of people using fentanyl or something. Why, why the fuck are you talking about crackheads? Or like punch up for God's sake. It's 2022. Sake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Aren't they supposed to be very clued into the opioid epidemic? Because that's what all of them will cite when you uh, you talk about why why doesn't the GOP care about actual uh, issues facing poor Americans will say, oh, I care about the opioid crisis. And then they'll spin that into a way to attack migrants and say that, you know, migrants are the reason uh, fentanyl is coming over the border. That's actually not true at all. But you would at least expect him to be up to date on the tropes if he's going to invoke them that way. This has been true and something that I remember sort of overlooking and excusing and kind of issuing a retort against back when I was in high school, when I really was a big fan of Bill Maher and his HBO show Real Time. My friends would point out, why does he laugh so much at his own jokes? Why, <laughs> why, why does he uh, laugh and snigger so much at each punchline that he wrote or was more likely written for him in his opening monologue at the beginning of the show, like his Jay Leno Tonight Show style uh, monologue about the news of the day or, or whatever. Like, it, he's been doing this for decades. Like, he... More so than your average famous comedian. He just cannot stop laughing at his own material. You need the you need the uh, the sign that it's okay to laugh now. He's he's welcoming the audience. He's signaling that that was a joke and that you can, you know, you can play along. This is also what Jimmy Fallon does. Is he laughs at all his own uh, material. Uh, but it's, yeah, to, it's, to Jimmy Fallon's <laughs> credit, his smile and the grimace on his face when he laughs at his own stuff, it actually kind of looks kind of boyish and vaguely charming. Bill Maher, it's, I don't want to be mean, but it looks like a Halloween mask. And that's been the case since he's been in his 50s or 40s. He's, what is he, like 82 now? He, he, need, he needs a laughing coach. I'm sure you can get that. You know, it's, uh, you, you can buy anything. He lives in California, probably at, at Hollywood's doorstep. He can figure it out. Before we get off the subject of this particularly large and loudmouth baby, I want to take a little bit of a trip down memory lane. Back in 2007, I think, during the height of his anti-George W. Bush, politically incorrect, uh, kind of uh, bad boy affect, he had this recurring thing, which he would say in sort of a mild pseudo-defense of Michael Jackson during the Michael Jackson trial. Oh, no. And again, make as crude or offensive seeming jokes as you want. I just ask that please at least try to make it some sort of semblance of funny. Like, uh, like, like make me do some sort of pained, uncomfortable laugh in response to your, uh, uh, whatever the hell dark material you're putting out there. I, I often love that type of stuff. You tell me if you think this is even funny. This even meets the bar for any kind of, like, uh, tell it like it is commentary or 
satire. I don't know what whatever he was going for here. Let, let's play the clip. This is him on Craig Ferguson's old late night talk show. People have no perspective, especially about crime, you know, zero, zero tolerance. Now, of course, nobody ever wants to see a child, you know, diddled. That's just plain wrong. Mm. But even the people who are testifying against him, uh, they're saying that he serviced them. They didn't service him. Mm. You don't have kids, do you, Bill? No. No, I, I have a but, son. It makes me crazy, this thing, this Michael Jackson thing. It drives me, I, the idea of someone touching my kid. Right. I would go, I would nearly swore that. I'd very, go crazy. Very wrong. Yeah. But, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I was savagely beaten once by bullies in the schoolyard. Mm -hmm. Savagely beaten. If I had a choice between being savagely beaten and being gently masturbated by a pop star, <laughs> it's just me. The almost controversial Belmar, everybody. Right, that's it. What would compel somebody to say that? I mean, is there a gun to his head right now? And, you know, Swin, as you pointed out, this isn't even the only time he's made this point. He said it again in an interview with Playboy. He cannot stop bringing up this really weird defense of Michael Jackson. Right. And what he said to Playboy was very similar, which was um, all I could think of was my being brutally beaten up on the playground when I was 12, a kid punching me in the face while another held me down. If I could go back and trade that experience for being gently masturbated by a pop star, I would do it in a New York second. He, he brings up this thing a lot as if he suffered through D-Day or something. It's like you got beaten <laughs> up on the playground once. It's like, get, get the fuck over it, man. Or maybe you should, if you feel this bad about it, don't mean to victim blame. Maybe he should have done a better job fighting back. After something like this happens to a 12-year-old, there are a lot of them who move on. There are a lot of them who uh, uh, take that experience and uh, start getting uh, more uh, beefed up in terms of self-defense or judo or something. There are people who take the ideas from that experience like, I should not do that to other people and I should look out for the underprivileged or the downtrodden or the bullied or something like that. No, he internalized it, clearly did not let it go into however old he was in 2007 and just used it repeatedly to say, I would rather be a kid who was molested by someone like Michael Jackson than being, I don't know, punched a few times once when I was on the fucking playground? Who, who, would, who would make that trade. One of them is sexual molestation. The other one is, okay, you got owned on a playground once. This is the conservative kids these days just aren't tough enough argument. You know, when I was your age, I was walking uphill both ways in the snow, except it's, it's going to defend a millionaire celebrity in alleged sex crimes against children. You should think at a certain point, maybe is that argument backfiring? <laughs> And uh, producer Jesse Cannon, to wrap this up, you were telling us earlier that you have some sort of anecdote about Bill Maher. The thing I always think of is there was one time when I was working with, uh, you know, before I produced you guys, I, or I recorded uh, Limp Biscuit. <laughs> I'm sorry you took that step down. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I see it as only ascending in my career. Uh, anyway, he saw me watching Bill Maher and he said, you know, man, Bill Maher is the only person who spends more time at the Playboy Mansion than me. Yikes. Mm -mm. Yeah, cringe. That's pretty grim. So moving on to something that depresses me a little less, well, maybe not. Let's find out. That's the running theme of this show, isn't it? When we segue between 
segment to segment sort of hopscotching between them it's all about okay are we gonna depress ourselves a little bit more or depress the listeners a little bit less i don't think we typically make lateral moves on this we should try that more often we just go for like different flavors of uh depression and i think that that works you know just as long as there's enough variety we can keep it moving so in uh in this brand of arizona depressing swin are you familiar with ron watkins run ronnie run yes i am so <laughs> ron watkins is one of the likeliest contenders for being an author behind QAnon. he uh until last year was uh, moderator on 8Kun, formerly 8chan it's the terrible forum that ron and his dad jim operated out of the Philippines. It hosts uh, QAnon. It hosts mass shooter manifestos. It's just, you know, it's the drags. Ron is now pivoting to uh, trying to become a congressional candidate. We've covered that a bit at The Beast. It is a, what we have characterized as a doomed plight. And just yesterday, his first uh, campaign finance filing came in and it's seems to support the idea that not too many people want Mr. QAnon himself in Congress. Ron raised just $33,000, and while that of itself is way too much for any internet troll's vanity campaign, it's pretty piss-poor relative to his primary challengers. His two main primary rivals have raised more than $400,000 and and more than $800,000, respectively, and even they are likely to lose in what is currently a democratically held district. How much has he pulled in again? $33,000, and some of that has been in loans. His dad, uh, Jim Watkins, who runs uh, 8 Coon loaned, but did not donate more than $2,000 to the campaign, which that's it, a little... I'd like to think that if uh, if I were running for Congress and my loved ones had the wherewithal to donate, they would just donate and not make a loan. But maybe, maybe that's tough love parenting. Ron Watkins, as our listeners know, is a, sort of a recurring minor character or, or supporting character, I should say, on this podcast. But he's obviously an example of someone who, as extreme as the mainstream of the GOP is today, if you're going to be extreme, you have to kind of do a little bit of a tap dance to it. Like the reason Tucker Carlson is as wildly popular and as influential among modern day conservatism as he is, is because he's found a way to sort of gently cut and thinly re-edit some of what you might get on an actual online white nationalist manifesto. If you just put that manifesto on Fox News explicitly saying, yes, this is from the White Nationalist Manifesto, it's not going to get the exact same mileage because it's going to seem too impolite. Ron Watkins is a guy who, obviously, if you drop him into um, a primary or a congressional race, he's not going to do nearly as well as other candidates or um, now elected politicians like, for instance, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who have openly flirted with batshit conspiracy theory, including QAnon, but are a little bit more shy about admitting it. They they, right. they walk the very, very large, easily walkable tightrope in the modern day Republican Party in a way he cannot. It's just like, OK, you forgot to say the quiet part quiet. So here's like 
30K at best for you. Right. And I mean, this reminds me that the conspiracy theory ecosystem, it needs a lot of specialized roles, right? Yeah, it needs the more charismatic Tucker Carlson types and the, um, the very loud and politically viable candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene to advance this stuff into the more mainstream acceptable realm but it also needs the uh the the complete loonies like ron watkins actively dreaming up these conspiracy theories he's an originator of a lot of these election fraud hoaxes allegedly of parts of QAnon, which is something that he denies but he's an originator of a lot of hoaxes and conspiracy theories and those people while they might be creative while they might be giving the source material for something that ends up on Tucker Carlson three nights later, they're not necessarily the most engaging characters of themselves. Ron Watkins is a, a just a void of charisma. You watch his videos and it, it it's like it's like watching the SpongeBob pet snail just kind of like meow in a monotone. It's it's really, you know, you can you can sense evil but it's also so boring does he laugh at his own jokes as much as bill moy does though i have never seen him laugh oh okay well at least he's got that going for him (laughs) and maybe that i have not mainlined enough ron watkins content but i've never seen the man laugh really just a blank canvas of emotion but you know to your point that these um that conspiracy theories and Fringe characters can thrive in the GOP if they walk the tightrope well enough. It's extreme, like, soft bigotry of low expectations mood going on right now because it's like, okay, you can say QAnon shit publicly, but then later say, oh, the fake news media is misinterpreting things and twisting my words when, in fact, they're very much not. You you can do that, but to full on be, oh, he, he might be the guy behind QAnon. He might literally be Q. Yeah, that doesn't fly. That That is a bridge too far. The other thing, okay, fine. So he's been trying to hack it into the mainstream for about, uh, I want to say six months. Prior to that, he wasn't even living in Arizona where he's running right now. He was in the Philippines running 8chan. But over the past like half a year, he's been on Telegram desperately, desperately trying to get photo ops with local Arizona politicians. And the worst instance of this I've seen is that he was in, oh man, I want to say it was the Arizona Secretary of State's office, some administrative Republican-held role there. And he's just filming himself sitting in the like the lobby of this office, waiting for anybody to pay attention to him and like bring him in for an appointment. And I don't think he ultimately got his photo op, but he's trying to backdoor it into state politics. And he has very recently seized onto maybe the smarter way to get into state politics, which is to show up at a school board meeting at a district in which you have no children involved uh, and to make some inflammatory comments, talk about the uh, the threat of liberal brainwashing by 25-year-old teachers. and Does he get into <laughs> the school board pedophiles at all or anything like that? Ooh, I haven't seen that from him yet, but a lot of these folks are playing from the same book. They've got the same talking points, and it's um, that is really where a lot of the grassroots conservative rage is right now. And he's only just now, only uh, after a very poor fundraising run, starting to make that connection and uh, show his face around children. So this is kind of his like very 
idiotic version of that classic onion headline about Marilyn Manson now going door to door <laughs> trying to like last ditch efforts to actually shock bystanders now. Right. And you know what's funny? So I've been on this story for a little bit. You know, I'm just I've been interested in his campaign and if it's raising anything at all. And before these finance disclosures came out, his campaign did try to tell me that they were raising quite a bit of money, that the momentum was really starting. So in November, they told me that they were getting at least a thousand dollars in donations a day and maybe even more because they were so busy they hadn't even had time to open their mail, which surely was stuffed full of checks. Well, I did the math and that was mm, a, you know like 60 plus days ago. So they should have more than twice what they have right now. And in fact, they only have uh I know I said they raised like thirty three thousand, they have about fifteen thousand cash on hand. So even this effort to meme himself into a moneymaker, to meme himself into a viable candidate, it's not really working when they have to put, you know, sworn affidavits to paper and say exactly how much money people are giving them. Okay, so you did your deep state pedophile arithmetic and you managed to come up with a number that is unflattering to Mr. Watkins. Do I have that right? That is right. If you want to uh, delve into it, 3-3, three, three, it's like kind of, you know, you got some Masonic angles going on there. I'm just saying run with it. I've talked to enough flat earthers that I can do the uh, numerology just as well as Ron Watkins. So hit me with that. <laughs> Moving on, Swin, we have a guest who is uh, several degrees saner than the Ron Watkins campaign. Who are we talking to today? Well, I'm actually really excited about this week's guest. Today, we're delighted to welcome to the pod, Mr. Byron Tao. Byron is a reporter in the Washington, D.C. Bureau of the Wall Street Journal, where he covers national security, privacy, and surveillance. We wanted to bring him on the show to delve into the wild, wild west of private and government surveillance and what it means for you, the listener, today. Trust me. It's going to be equal parts terrifying and equal parts enlightening. Stick around after the break. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks for sticking around, Fever Dreams listeners. Our guest this week is Byron Powell, a Wall Street Journal reporter and veteran of such publications as Politico. Byron specializes in covering the intricacies of modern-day surveillance, privacy, and national security. And we want to bring him on today to discuss the light and fluffy topics of who could be listening in on you right now and why. 
You can follow him on Twitter at Byron Tao and read his stories and exclusive reports at WSJ.com. Byron, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. One reason I really, really want to have you on is because this show deals a lot with untangling rabid conspiracy theories, byproducts of a truly American paranoia that can lead to people actually thinking something akin to their toaster is listening in on them, funneling that intel and data back to the Central Intelligence Agency. Your work, obviously, exists in reality, not in that mindset. But I will have to say, when I read a good deal of your reporting, the facts you unearth and cover often sound to me as wild or as upsetting as that kind of fevered imagination. The only difference is this is what governments and private firms are actually doing in our global community today. Can you tell our listeners about what the hell I'm talking about, exactly what you specialize in, and uh, how you ended up on this beat? And for starters, do I understand it correctly that you are currently writing a book on this subject? That's right. So I got obsessed with this a couple of years ago when I stumbled onto the fact that the Department of Homeland Security in the United States was buying all of the data from apps, basically weather apps, games, all of the location data from these apps is available for sale, shows a lot of detail on the movements of huge numbers of people, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, and was all being purchased for this tracking program. And that got me very interested in all the other ways in which our consumer technology generates data in ways that we don't understand and can't always know, and all the ways in which governments are taking advantage of that data. Uh, And that includes everything from our transaction data, that includes social media profiles, and that also includes all this metadata that our phones generate, our computers generate, our browsers generate, and increasingly things like wearables and the Internet of Things. All that stuff generates data, and all that data is being harvested somewhere, somehow, by someone. And trying to understand that world has been a, a big obsession of mine over the past uh, basically two years. The book I'm writing is, is essentially about the ways in which consumer technology has the potential for surveillance, and in many cases is being used for surveillance. And when you're talking about uh, just everyday apps that people use on their smartphones, like weather apps, what kind of apps exactly are you talking about? Are you talking about like the weather app that comes automatically installed on, for instance, someone's iPhone? Are you talking about their Yelp app? Like, how broad is this net? that we're working with here. It's basically impossible for consumers to really know what happens to the information that comes off of their phones. Even if you read the privacy policy in detail, even if you try to understand how the app data is flowing and what the advertising partners are, it's very, very difficult. So it's basically safe to assume that if you allow an app to have access to your geolocation, that in some way, shape or form, that information is being collected and probably sold. When you're talking about brokering the location of phones, usually the apps that are the most um, guilty of this are things like weather apps, they're things like exercise apps, they're anything that needs your location persistently. And we recently saw a very popular family safety app called Life360, they got dinged for selling the location of all of their users, essentially. (laughs) 
Isn't Life360 for children as well? It is. It's a, it's a family safety app. And what they were doing is they were stripping the data set of any names. So, so nobody's name was attached to, to their movements. However, your movements are very personal, right? I, I'm basically the only person uh, in the whole wide world that gets up at my apartment every morning and back before the pandemic went to the Wall Street Journal's offices in downtown Washington. So if I had a map of all the cell phones in Washington, even if it didn't have my name on it, it's still going to show precise movement patterns that can be traced back to me. And so all of this data is flowing through numerous, numerous companies that buy and sell this stuff. The average consumer just can't know because even though these companies are relying on so-called consent, they're not being explicit about where they're getting the data from or what's happening to it at the point of collection. And often it, it jumps three or four loops before it ever gets to a data broker. And so, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to try to figure out where your data goes. Byron, one thing I was thinking about is that when you explain it like that, it's very easy for me to say, oh, I care about my privacy. I'm going to take steps to safeguard it. But I remember back in like 2016 when Pokemon Go was a huge thing. And even after it was revealed that this was massively harvesting your location data and other identifiable elements, I and a whole bunch of other players just sort of shrugged and said, well, so be it. And we kept playing the game. Do you think that people um, are very invested in anonymizing their data, or is this kind of a lost cause? Do the apps know that we're going to hand over our, our personal information? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I think most people, most of the time, choose convenience over privacy. At the same time, people are starting to realize there can be serious consequences when you have fairly innocuous apps. So let's take the example of the Catholic official last summer who was using Grindr, which is a violation of his oath to the Catholic Church and his vow of celibacy, and was outed by a Catholic publication that purchased all his data, or basically all the data of many Grindr users, and started looking for patterns and looking for Catholic officials. That's a real consequence that happened to somebody because they were using a consumer app. As people become more aware that there can be real-life consequences to their privacy, um, and we're seeing this on things like social media and with doxing, I think people will become more conscious of just the amount of data they're putting in the world and perhaps take some steps to curb it, especially when they're doing things that are personal or doing things that they would prefer the whole world not know about. So uh, let's back up for a second. I think it would blow the minds at least some of our listeners, some of whom may have used Grindr before, maybe they've used Tinder or any other kinds of uh, dating or hookup apps, that other private citizens can buy their data that they maybe thought was sort of private to some degree? How does that work? How, how does a publication or just anybody get to the point of, oh, I want to see who is hooking up with whom on this app? And it's all legal. It's all perfectly legal. There's nothing technically underhanded about this. Is that correct? That's essentially correct. Basically, sort of modern commercial data collection relies on consent and arguably not 
every time a consumer's information is harvested, are they truly consenting? Um, so there are some open-ended legal questions, especially because GDPR, um, the European Data Privacy Law and CCPA, the California version of that, um, have been passed in recent years. But in general, as long as your privacy policy says somewhere that you're going to collect geolocation data and you may share it with your partners, even if those partners aren't specified, even if um, the use cases for that aren't specified, it's still generally considered in the United States to be largely legal. And yes, all sorts of code is running in every single app we use. There's advertising code, there's analytics code, and there's many, many parties that collect data from consumer apps like Grindr, like Tinder, like the Weather Channel. All of those partners are getting some piece of user data, and some of them are reselling it in sort of shadowy or um, opaque, basically data bazaars. And in some cases, you can get fairly detailed information like the users of Grindr. Now, this stuff's not advertised openly. It's kind of an obscure world, but it's out there. Byron, you mentioned GDPR and California, both GDPR being a European Union effort and California passing its own privacy measures. I was wondering, are there any like viable legal uh, efforts right now to regulate or rein in how data harvesting is being conducted? Sure. Congress has been debating this for a very long time. And basically, the United States as a whole has no comprehensive data privacy law. There are bits and pieces of laws that protect, say, your financial information. There are some weird laws that were passed in response to some very specific instances. For example, your video rental history is um, actually protected by law. Oh, thank God. Oh. Thank God, right? And this, I believe this came about because uh, some journalists got their hands on uh, a nominees to some to some agency or maybe a court. You mean I didn't have to burn down a blockbuster? Anyway, <laughs> go on. They did not, but they got their hands on um, someone's video rental history and, and Congress said that's outrageous and, and passed a law protecting video rental history. But in the intervening time between the 1980s when video rental privacy was on the top of everyone's mind and today when the global information infrastructure is collecting data on all of us, Congress has basically done nothing. Uh, and so there's been a long-standing debate about how to regulate, you know, um, data privacy. But, you know, the critics say, well, we don't want to restrain innovation. Data is at the heart of what a lot of these companies do. It's the new oil. And we want to be tread very, very carefully in regulating. So basically nothing has gotten done since the rise of the internet. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about how journalists have utilized the ability to buy these tranches of data that um, I think your average person might not think are quite as out there, shall we say, as they would have hoped. Let's say hypothetically, I am a apparatchik for a random dictatorship somewhere on the planet, and I want to get some dirt or compromising info about a uh, group of dissidents or anti-regime uh, activists. Maybe they're operating in the United States or England or s somewhere else. Oh, and I also w want to get information on their families. Surely a person like that would be able to hoover up via quote-unquote legitimate and legal means by buying 
a bunch of their data? And has stuff like this happened in dictatorships all over the world yet? Well, it's a good question. Because so much of this takes place in the shadows, uh, and I don't mean that it's illegal, but basically a lot of the buying and selling of data is done in, in sort of obscure ways or by fairly obscure companies, we don't always quite know. We do know there is a robust capability out there for not just buying data, but hacking. Um, and that's what we've largely seen in recent years, that a lot of countries, especially smaller countries who don't have the intelligence capabilities of a big company like the United States, have essentially started contracting with companies all over the world to try to break into phones. And that's been the primary area that that you know, a lot of reporting and a lot of attention and increasingly U.S. pressure through sanctions uh, has been brought to bear on vendors that sell the capability to hack. But there's also the capability to buy. And we do know that the U.S. government takes advantage of all of this data, and it would be very naive to assume that every other country out there was not doing it. So I would assume that there is a fairly robust market for this data at the governmental level, and that this is happening all over the world. Do you know if there's a corresponding market for this on a more local level? I'm thinking about police using like geofencing warrants to figure out who was in a certain location during a protest. Are there companies that will sell that data to individual police forces? It's a good question. Um, In general, in the United States, we've largely seen law enforcement actually going to courts and asking like the carriers for the warrants. But the capability does exist for the police to buy this data. However, most of the vendors have tried to shy away from the local police, um, A, because they're not as well funded as the FBI or DHS, and B, because there are legitimate concerns uh, for privacy and whether every police department, all 1,500 of them, have the right mindset, have the right protections in place to handle something like a tracking tool that can look at some large percentage of the population's movements at all times. And so vendors have hesitated to go down the route of selling to the local police. However, the capability certainly exists, and we know that this has happened, of local police going to a judge saying, we believe a crime has been committed in this particular area. We would like a search warrant for every phone in this radius. And that can include and has included some of the protests in the summer of 2012 and other times where we've seen police ask for information about who was at a demonstration that say, turned violent or riotous. And in general, the tech companies have turned over that information when requested by a government or a court without tremendous pushback. Before we get on to the uh, hacking element of this broader story, which you were alluding to earlier, I want to read the headline and part of the article that you wrote last year at the Wall Street Journal, just to give our audience a taste. App taps unwitting users abroad to gather open source intelligence. And then you write, the premise app pays users, many in the developing world, to do tasks like taking photos and completing surveys for clients, including the U.S. military. So this is something you reported on where it's not an abstract, like the U.S. government or the U.S. military could do something. This is something that they have actively done. Can you explain that a little bit more, how people 
ordinary citizens in different parts of the world become essentially unwitting spies for the U.S. military. So this app is basically TaskRabbit, um, but focused around the taking of photos, the doing of surveys, and with a very large developing world presence. So it basically started life as an international development tool that was trying to measure prices in very far-flung places of staples like bread or crops, but that wasn't paying the bills. And so a couple of years ago, it really pivoted hard towards um, much more government work in the military space and in the military intelligence space. And so basically what this app does is it pays users a small amount of money uh, for to do tasks. Often those tasks are surveys, um, but sometimes they're go take a picture of something or walk this route. And what I found out in reporting on this is when this app is asking people to walk a route, often what it's doing is using the user's phone to scan all the signals around the phone. So basically, there's some software running on the phone and it's looking at all the signals around it. So all the Wi-Fi networks that it sees, all of the cell towers that it sees. And that information is very valuable to military planners because they know if they're going to send a special forces team into this neighborhood in Iraq, that this is how many cell towers they're going to need to jam if they want the element of surprise. Or this is where so-and-so's Wi-Fi network is and this is what they're um, Wi-Fi username is if we're going to have the NSA hack them. So this is open source intelligence, it's true, but it's people all around the world doing very, you know, very interesting gathering of ambient data about far-flung places for the government without necessarily knowing that they're working for the U.S. military. And this company has gone out of their way to push back against my reporting and to generally portray themselves as being a, a kind of commercial company. But in general, they're doing a lot of work with military entities and with military intelligence. And a lot of this data is being fed into um, special forces units, is being fed into military intelligence commands. Uh, it's a fascinating case study. And let's not forget that it's not only the United States that's taking advantage of these capabilities, right? There's real concern about TikTok among U.S. national security officials, and that's for very similar reasons. That if you have a distributed app with hundreds of millions or tens of millions of users in the United States, well, all those phones are collecting exactly the same kind of data, photos about places, as well as information about signals around the phone. And, you know, when the Chinese state can access all that data through their, through their national security law, there becomes a real concern about having so many distributed phones and sensors uh, with a company that has ties to the Chinese military. So this is the frontiers of kind of intelligence and espionage and surveillance, just collecting all this ambient signals data about the things around people. And, you know, modern technology gives off all sorts of these signals. Cars now have Bluetooth broadcast, little radios, you know, your headphones now broadcast this radio frequency stuff. And all that can be picked up by someone looking for it through a mobile phone app. The apps that ask people to go out and collect local data reminds me of just the most insidious version of the um, the real person authenticator where you like click all the fire hydrants in a picture before you can log on to your Facebook account. Um, but so Byron, I feel like every couple days I read about a bad actor hacking um, 
some kind of more legitimate or established internet company. And I was wondering if there um, have been instances or at least if there's concerns about these big data brokers being hacked and that that information being used for more nefarious purposes. It's a good question. First of all, I mean, some of the data that these brokers have is simply available for purchase, but there is obviously this hacking concern. Um, We've seen major, major breaches of all manner of internet services, including very crucial ones like, you know, oil pipelines and power plants and dams uh, that could really cause physical damage or havoc in the real world. Um, but when you're just talking about information on ordinary people, yes, there's there's real concern about this. I mean, we've seen, um, for example, um, Experian, uh, one of the big major credit bureaus and data brokers, they were breached. We've seen the Office of Personal Management of the U.S. government, which has the personnel files of lots and lots of federal workers, including people in very sensitive jobs. That was hacked, has their family's information in many cases. And so there's all manner of dangers to the to the loss of information through hacking. And in general, our legal system has uh, shown itself to be completely unable to hold these companies to account when they uh, not just sell our data, but lose it to nefarious actors like criminals or other state intelligence services. There has not been tremendous civil penalties or any ability for consumers to really make these companies feel any sort of pain um, when these breaches happen. And so this is a serious and ongoing problem that in general, we don't really have much of a handle on. Well, before we let you get going, let me ask you the $10,000 question, which I'm sure at least a few of our listeners have right now on their minds after you laid a lot of the landscape out for us on this. What can the average person, not a senior Biden administration official or anything like that, but what can the uh, layman, the ordinary citizen, do to safeguard themselves against some of what you were just talking about? Or have we entered a sort of extremely online universe where they're just kind of shit out of luck? It's a good question. So let me first try to reassure people that they're very unlikely to be targeted by something like the NSO group's Pegasus. Uh, If you're an ordinary person just living your life, it's very unlikely that you directly will be hacked by something like a sophisticated state uh, intelligence service or a contractor that supports those things. So you know, if you're a human rights activist, if you're a journalist, if you're a politician, sure, you, you may well be targeted. But in general, most people are at risk for things like financial crime and identity theft, but aren't really truly at risk of being hacked by something sophisticated like the headlines we've seen about NSO. Um, but that said, all of us are generating all sorts of, of crazy amounts of data on our phones. And the easiest thing you can do is simply check your permissions. Go into whatever Apple or Android or Microsoft, whatever operating system you use, lock down the amount of data that these services are collecting. Really disable geolocation unless it's really, really necessary or only enable it when um, you you need to hail your Uber, but don't let, say, Uber look at your um, location 24-7. Same with your weather app. Limit the amount of time that a service has access to your data, to your microphone, to your photos, to your contacts, to your Bluetooth. 
Like most of the time, none of these apps need to do this, except in very limited cases. And so that's number one thing you can do to protect yourself. Right. Number one, just don't be lazy about it and just feel free to turn off the location. (laughs) Take it seriously. Right. The other thing you can do is um, basic cyber hygiene. And this is kind of an eat your vegetables piece of advice. But, you know, use strong passwords. Don't use the same password. Don't click on crazy links that are, are, you know, emailed to you. That sort of stuff goes 80% of the way towards protecting yourself from most of the really invasive bad things that happen online. And, you know, you may be a person like, you know, you and I, we're all, we're journalists. We we may have to be a little more on guard here, but most ordinary people are, are mostly at risk of, of identity theft and, and financial crimes and scams. And they can get most of the way to good security by just using their brain, slowing down and not installing or clicking on you know, kind of shady things. Okay, so they don't need to dump their Google smartphone into that of acid and then buy like a cricket flip phone right now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it depends. Again, it it depends what level of risk you want to expose yourself to in exchange for convenience. And let's not forget that smartphones and computers have offered us a tremendous amount of convenience. Unfortunately, the economic system behind what powers them is data collection. Understanding that trade-off and understanding uh, how much of their data is being collected, especially when they use a free service, is important. And uh, that's another thing I forgot to mention. Often, merely paying a little money for something will get you better privacy. For example, I once used Gmail, and Gmail is a great product in many ways. But on the other end, Google makes its money by collecting data, by trying to understand its users' likes and dislikes and what they're searching for in order to provide them with better services. And so that, in some ways, made me uncomfortable. I didn't like the arrangement. And so I now pay 5 $7 a month or something for an email service. Most Americans don't do that. But it's a way to change the conversation around data privacy. And so Thinking through some of these big questions about, well, you know, what is the economic value I'm providing to this company or this app? If it's free, what are they extracting from me in exchange? And is there an option where I can pay for a better service, for more privacy, for something that doesn't collect data on me? So just having this conversation as a society and understanding the dangers and the implications, as well as the conveniences of all these technologies, I think is is an important step. Byron, thanks so much for stopping by. Come back soon to continue scaring the shit out of all of us. And Fever Dreams listeners, please give him a follow if you would like to on Twitter.com at Byron Tao, or preferably read his great reports and his stories at uh, WSJ.com. Byron, come back anytime. Thanks for having me. And now it's time to move on to our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell. Kelly Wilde, what do we have on tap for our listeners this week? So welcome to Fresh Hell, the segment where we tell you about the thing that will unfortunately be unavoidable in the coming weeks. Have you heard of the Canadian trucker convoy? Blissfully, no. Oh, congratulations. You're about to. (laughs) (laughs) So in Canada right now, there is an anti-vaccine trucker convoy going across the country. There were efforts to 
portray it as this massive thing with hundreds of thousands of truckers. It's really a very small fraction of that size. But that hasn't stopped Americans from dreaming about launching their own efforts. As usual, and as happens every few years, this is a Facebook-driven effort that doesn't necessarily seem to have much buy-in from truckers. It's a lot of America's dads and uh, jet ski dealership owners going online and talking about how badass it would be if America's long-haul truckers really stood up and stuck it to the man. The man being Joe Biden here? Yeah, Joe Biden or Bill Gates or, you know, whomever uh, they're angry at today. But this planned convoy in the U.S. is talking about going from California to D.C. Now, it's important to note that they really don't have many firm plans yet. There is one very large Facebook group uh, that's been trying to coordinate efforts. Right now, it just sounds like a uh, a meeting of maybe 12-year-olds when they're talking about like building a haunted house and they're just throwing all the cool things out there. They're like, man, we're going to, what if we got Kid Rock to perform? And they're like, no, no, no. What if we don't go to D.C.? What if we go to the border, the U.S.-Mexico border, and we shut that down? Okay. And this is primarily because they're angry about vaccine requirements. Is that correct? Yeah, that's broadly right. COVID-19 vaccine requirements, not all the other requirements. No, of course not. Not things like, you know, the the flu and, you know, just things that have been quite commonplace in uh, American life for decades. What's interesting about this, actually, is that although we don't have much information about buy-in from actual American truckers and even what they hope to do besides their current memes— In Canada, where truckers are ostensibly protesting, 90% of the trucking industry is actually vaccinated against COVID-19. So for all this effort to make it seem like a populist grassroots movement, it's not in any way representative of the actual Canadian trucking industry, which doesn't want to get COVID. Right. And I mean, whether it's in Canada or the United States, we're never going to stop hearing the end of how a bunch of these anti-vaccine dipshits, including people who are absolutely fully vaccinated, people who are uh, gigantic stars on places like Fox News who go around talking about how the vaccine is under your bed and is going to kill you in your sleep or something like, like that. They they always try to hold up their conception or their cynical interpretation of the working class guy or woman as the people who they're sticking up for. Like it, when when you try to get all these COVID-19 vax restrictions or requirements going, you are uh, shitting all over these working class people who we're speaking for and who don't like these vaccines or these requirements either. They never stop playing that line and that card, even no matter how many, as you were just talking about, st- uh, statistics or accounts that are clear as day come out that, oh, I don't know, 90 or upwards of 90 percent of these people who they're pretending to speak for are like, I have my vaccine. <laughs> I got it. What's the problem? Right. Oh, <laughs> and there, there's this bizarre fetishization. I guess there always has been of um, of the worker on the right and of the worker as someone who is um, actually anti um 
anti-workplace safety and is secretly aligned. That's what a working class construction worker loves, to be for there to be no safety requirements. Yes. Down with the re- repressive OSHA, we are, I am going to drive this backhoe on cocaine, and that is what freedom really is. <laughs> no. In Canada, where this convoy is actually going on, I'm going to quote from the New York Times. Private cars and pickup trucks greatly outnumbered the heavy trucks that made up the convoy in its first days. This isn't a worker movement. This isn't a movement of truckers. This is a movement of jet ski dealership owners, of Ford F-150 owners, who are like, yeah, I'm going to get my ham radio out and join the big boys on the road. And it's just goddamn obnoxious. I'm just waiting to tune into, like, aerial news footage of it and just for it to be, like, limousines with with like (laughs) hands with little white gloves sticking out the windows holding actual flutes of champagne now see that's actually tactically interesting a limousine is quite long if you want a blockade you know but i don't (laughs) (laughs) i don't i don't think that's where this is going although it, it would make for good optics in the u.s there is also this recurring fantasy about not just any right-wing worker uprising, but about specifically a trucker blockade. And I don't know if you remember this, but in 2013, they tried having a blockade of D.C. They Mm -hmm. called it the ride for the Constitution, and they were going to just like drive very slowly around the Beltway and mess everything up. And it had virtually no effect. It was like some (laughs) weather got in the way, and they're like, oh, guys, got to take it home. And then You know, there was an actual D.C.-based truck protest in 2020, but it wasn't some political showmanship. It wasn't about stop Joe Biden. It was about issues in the trucking industry. So often when we see workers mobilize, it's about niche issues in their field. Didn't they get pissed when Donald Trump, like, tried to co-opt it? Yes, yes. He said, you know, he tried to uh, make it out to be something uh, that he supported and saying that they were supporting him. He said that the truckers love me. They love me, folks. Yes, they were parked outside the White House. And he said, oh, it's a sign of love for him. And I said, no, it's not. Like, they're saying that our our rates are being uh, miscalculated when we get pay. We're saying that the pandemic has really obliterated how much they're making. It's hurting their bottom line. So there were legitimate political and you know, financial concerns in there, but it gets steamrolled into this language of we're going to have Kid Rock come and play on the U.S.-Mexico border, and that's going to show Joe Biden. None of that's actually playing out with the people who are um, affected by these policies and who might actually take part in one of these campaigns. I want to be very clear. The reason Donald Trump and his adult ilk are able to sort of cosplay the role of I am fighting for the working class or the white working class in America is because they are feeding upon this very middle and upper middle class conception in the Republican Party that, okay, when we're talking about the working class, these people have maybe $18 in savings. Uh, Perhaps they're uneducated or not as educated as they would have liked to be. These people must be dumb. They must be the people running around rattling the saber about why the vaccine has microchips in it. So we're just going to project every insecurity we have about them and every like empty headed stereotype that some guy like Donald Trump would have about his type of supporters. 
and just embody what a complete fucking idiot in that scenario would be and hope that they like it. And you know what? Too often it should. It fucking works. Not necessarily for the working class in America, but for the people who are the backbone of the Republican Party, which is, of course, exactly the demographic that you were describing earlier, something about boat dealership owners or um, (laughs) um, uh, well-off dentists in the vast middle of America. Yeah, absolutely. And just as the the icing Hmm. on the cake. Chiropractors. Sorry, I forgot about chiropractors. Chiropractors. God, I've seen so many terrible chiropractor to politician campaign websites pop up in the past year. But that's that's something for another fresh hell, actually. I'm going to write that down. But <laughs> I did I did want to kind of cap this off with one of the worst examples of how these ostensibly worker based protests get co-opted. And in Canada, where this is ongoing, the supposedly trucker movement is now being plagued with supporters who are literally holding swastika flags and interfering with local soup kitchens where they're accused of harassing staff by demanding free food and refusing to comply with the soup kitchen's mask mandate. So, there you have it. You know, you uh, you lie down with the dogs and you get up with fleas. Boom. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.